Section three of Symbolism by Johann Adam Moller. Translated by James Burton Robertson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoir of Dr. Moller. Part one. Many of the facts related in the following biographical sketch rest on the authority of two short memoirs of the illustrious writer. The one by Dr. Rune, professor of Catholic theology at the University of Tübingen, the other by the anonymous author of the interesting introduction prefixed to the fifth German edition of the symbolism. For many other particulars, I have been indebted to the kindness of Dr. Rethmeyer, professor of divinity at the University of Munich, as well as to that of Dr. Bernkert, dean of Würzburg, and of Dr. Dux, rector of the ecclesiastical seminary in the same city. The following memoir is preceded by an historical survey of the state of Protestantism and Catholicism in Germany during the last hundred years, to enable the English reader to better to understand the general scope and tendency of the work I have translated, as well as the many allusions and references it contains to the great changes that in modern times have occurred in the Protestant theology of Germany. I have endeavored, according to my humble ability, to take a rapid historical view of those changes. Though, indeed, only the elder Protestantism and its opposition to the Catholic Church is analyzed in this work, and the rationalism which sprang up in Germany towards the middle of the 18th century, and which has almost entirely superseded the old Lutheranism, is, for the reason assigned by the author himself, not here formally investigated. Still, as frequent comparisons are constituted between the older and the more modern systems of German Protestantism, some degree of acquaintance with the latter is evidently highly useful for the better understanding and appreciation of the work now translated. But this great revolution in the German Protestant Church can be comprehended in all its bearings and estimated in all its results only through a comparison with the state of German Catholicism during the same period. Under this impression, I have placed beside the representation of German Protestantism a corresponding picture of the Catholic Church. I conceive, too, that by such a historic portraiture of the latter, the moral and intellectual influence of the illustrious divine, whose biography I have attempted to trace, would be better discerned and more fully appreciated. In drawing up this preliminary historic sketch, the authorities I have consulted are, on the Catholic side, Dr. Dollinger's continuation of Hortig's Church History, The Compendium of Ecclesiastical Church History, by Dr. Alzov, and Gurr's Historico-Political Journal, and on the Protestant side, and the Reverend Mr. Rose's Lectures on the State of Protestantism in Germany, Professor Thalek's essay, entitled Historic Sketch of the Revolution, which since the year 1750 has occurred in German theology, and the Manual of Christian History by Dr. Hayes. In a work which has recently appeared in Germany and is attributed to the pen of an eminent Protestant, we find a passage where the history of German Protestantism from the commencement of the Reformation down to the middle of the 18th century is traced in a few brief, vigorous, and masterly strokes. This passage I prefer to cite rather than attempt on my part any delineation of the same subject. Quote, the first fifty years, says this writer, that followed on the outbreak of the Reformation, witnessed incessant wranglings, disputes, and mutual anathematizings, 
between the several Protestant parties, first between Luther and Zwingli's, next between the rigid Lutherans and the crypto-Calvinists, and so on, when after long intrigues and tedious negotiations, the Chancellor of Tübingen, James Andrea, succeeded, about the year 1586, in obtaining acceptance for the so-called Formulary of Concord, the theological strife receded from the arena of public life into the school, and for the whole century that followed, the Protestant Church was distinguished for a narrow-minded polemical scholasticism and a self-willed, contentious theology. The Lutheran orthodoxy in particular degenerated more and more into a dry, spiritless, mechanical formalism, without religious feeling, warmth, and unction. The same authors of the new faith that had with so much violence contested the church's prerogative of infallibility in her tradition desired now to claim for their own symbolical books a divine origin and an exemption from error. They whose religious community was founded in the principle of recognizing scripture as the sole standard of faith now disputed its right to be the exclusive depository of the divine word. They who had refused to the Catholic Church infallibility now pretended to an absolute and immutable possession of revealed truth. In opposition to this Protestant orthodoxy that had fallen away from the fundamental principle of the Reformation, and therefore clung to the greater obstinacy of the letter of its symbolical books, Spener insisted upon a living faith rooted in the regenerate will, and undertook to revivify religion that had perished in the stiff forms of a mechanical orthodoxy, but from his very confined views on philosophy and speculative theology, from his aversion to all settled and defined religious notions, from his indifference about dogmas in general, and his deficiency in a solid groundwork of learning and an undue propensity to a false mysticism, whereby he bears a remote affinity to the Quakers and other sects. From all these defects, Spenner was unable to bring about the completion of the Reformation which he had promised, although on several leading points he entertained convictions which fitted him for reforming the Lutheran doctrines. The Protestant orthodoxy having succeeded by anathemas and persecution in reducing to temporary silence the first commotions of the yet impotent rationalism sank into soft repose on its pillow. But in the midst of German Protestantism, an alliance had been formed, which at first appeared to be of little danger nay, to be even advantageous, but which soon overthrew the whole scaffolding of doctrine that the old Protestant orthodoxy had raised up and precipitated Protestant theology into that course which has in the present day led it entirely to subvert all the dogmas of Christianity and totally to change the original views of the reformers." Unquote. The principle of rationalism is inherent in the very nature of Protestantism, it manifested itself in the very origin of the Reformation, and has since, to a greater or a less extent, and in every variety of form, revealed its existence in almost every Protestant community. In the less vigorous constitution of Lutheranism, it had fewer obstacles to encounter than in the Calvinistic churches, and more particularly in the Anglican establishment. It entered, too, undoubtedly, into the design of Providence that the people, which had been the first to welcome the so-called Reformation, should be also the first to pay the bitter penalty for apostasy. That the land which had first witnessed the rise of Protestant heresy 
should be likewise the first to behold its lingering, painful, and humiliating dissolution. But the several causes which, for the middle of the 18th century, brought about this great moral distemper in the Protestant churches of Germany, as well as the forms which the malady successively assumed, I will now endeavor to describe. It was in the department of biblical exegesis that this movement of rationalism first displayed itself. The school of Michaelis, with its false, over-fastidious, worldly-minded criticism, treated the scriptures with levity and even disrespect, denied the inspiration of some portions of the Bible, and debased and vulgarized its doctrine. The same views were carried out with much greater boldness and consistency by Semler, who, abusing the right principle that in the interpretation of Scripture, regard should be had to the language wherein it is written, and to the history of the times at which it was composed, degraded the dignity of the Bible by circumscribing its teachings within mere local and temporary bounds, diluted its doctrines, and attached importance to those parts only where a moral tendency was clearly visible. From this period, the Lutheran divines became divided into three classes. There were, first, those who remained true to the symbolical books. Secondly, those who, like Nusselt and Morris, insisted more particularly on the ethics of Christianity, and without positively rejecting all its peculiar dogmas, declared them to be of no essential importance. And thirdly, those who, like Romerus and the elder Eichhorn, systematically pursuing the work commenced by Semler, not only assailed the inspiration of the Bible, but rejected its prophecies, denied most of the miracles it records, and refused to acknowledge in Christianity aught else than a mere local and temporary phenomenon. Nay, two celebrated theologians of Berlin, Teller and Spalding, did not hesitate to enter into a secret confederacy with professed infidels like Nicolay, Engel, Solzer, and the rest, for the purpose of purifying, as they professed, the doctrines of the Christian religion. This confederacy was entitled, quote, Association for the Diffusion of Light and Truth, unquote. And this is the place to say a few words respecting, quote, the popular philosophers, unquote, as they were called, who openly and recklessly attacked that revelation which the theologians I have described were insidiously and covertly undermining. The writings of the English deists in the early part of the 18th century exercised a very pernicious influence in Protestant Germany, and later, contemporaneous literature of the French infidels, so much encouraged by Frederick II, excited there a spirit of disastrous emulation. A society was formed so early as the year 1735 by Nat and Eldman for the diffusion of irreligious pamphlets and writings in which not only all Christianity was decried, but the most daring atheism unblushingly avowed. Nicolay, whose name already occurred, established about the year 1765 at Berlin a literary review with the object of propagating the pernicious doctrines of a shallow illuminism. And in that infancy of German literature, when this periodical had scarcely a rival to encounter, the influence it exerted was more extensive than can at present be even conceived. Bard and Bastow, at the same time, in cheap and popular tracts, scattered among the lower classes the poison of infidelity, and they, as well as Nicolay, were in close communication with Weishaupt, who, in Bavaria, 
had founded the order of the illuminati for the purpose of undermining the foundations of the throne and the altar i may here observe that in catholic countries infidelity assumes a very different aspect and is forced to pursue a very different policy than among protestant nations in the former countries unbelief reprobated by the church driven from her communion finding her on every point a vigilant unassailable unrelaxing unrelenting adversary is compelled to hide its head in secret societies or if it brave the daylight it then wages fierce immitigable warfare with catholicity but in protestant states such a mode of warfare on the part of infidelity is neither necessary nor expedient for its purpose as it springs out of the very root of protestantism as it is but a natural and necessary development of its doctrines as it differs from the latter not in essence but in degree only it is its policy and we see it practice it invariably to flatter the protestant church to court its allegiance to mingle with its teaching to soften down its own principles in order the better to diffuse them and when threatened with exclusion to appeal to protestant principles and defy condemnation it is objective that infidelity abounds as much in catholic as in protestant countries and that therefore it cannot be said that protestantism is more favorable to its growth than the rival church but a few remarks will suffice to show the futility of such an objection in the first place it is true that voltaire like luther went out of the catholic church but while the coryphaeus of french infidelity extolled the reformation eulogized the reformers and boasted that he himself came to consummate the work they had left incomplete he waged the fiercest hostility against the catholic church and her ministers and the deists of england and protestant germany though they came into less immediate collision with that church than voltaire and his disciples well knew where their most powerful and formidable antagonist was to be found secondly if protestantism were not more favorable than catholicity to the growth of unbelief how doth it happen that in those ages when the catholic church exerted the greatest influence over mind and manners over public and private life ages too be it remembered often distinguished for a boldness an acuteness and a depth of metaphysical inquiry that have never been surpassed how doth it happen i say that in those ages infidelity was a thing so rare so obscure so insignificant how doth it happen that it followed so closely in the wake of the reformation that history makes mention of a sect of deists in switzerland at the close of the sixteenth century that in protestant england during the seventeenth and eighteenth century deism assumed an attitude of such boldness and attained to such fearful vigor and expansion that at the commencement of the eighteenth century the protestant veil first introduced into catholic france that voltaire and the encyclopedists confessed they borrowed the weapons of their anti-christian warfare from the armory of the english deists and that rousseau that most dangerous of the french infidels was a protestant by birth and only developed the principles of protestantism and more than once declared that if the divinity of the christian religion could be demonstrated to him he would not hesitate to embrace the catholic faith thirdly it will not be denied that socinianism leads by easy gradations to unbelief that some classes of unitarians are distinguished from deists only by their belief in the general credibility of the bible 
and that, therefore, any church which would show itself indulgent towards Socinianism, any church which openly or covertly, in a greater or less degree, will foster its tenets, proves itself thereby favorable to the propagation of deism. Now, Socinianism, like a poisonous plant cast off from the Catholic soil of Italy, took root and flourished in the Protestant communities of Poland, attained during the 18th century to a most rank luxuriance in the Church of Geneva, and at the same time cast a blighting shade over the Episcopal establishment of England. Fourthly, if any doubt remained as to the intimate connection between Protestantism and infidelity, it would be dispelled by the history of the German Protestant churches during the last hundred years. There we see men holding important offices in the church, pastors of congregations, superintendents of consistories, professors of theology, not only reject the authority of the symbolical books, and disavow almost all those Catholic dogmas which the Lutheran and Calvinists had hitherto retained, but openly assail the divine inspiration of the scriptures, deny the integrity and authenticity of large portions of the Old and the New Testament, allegorize the prophecies, and disbelieve, and sometimes even ridicule, the miracles recorded in the Bible. These opinions, professed more or less openly, carried out to a greater or less extent, were once held by an immense majority of Protestant theologians, and even in despite of a partial reaction, are still held by the greater part. Yet, they nevertheless retain their function and dignities in the Protestant Church. They are thus enabled to propagate their doctrines with impunity. Those Protestants who protest against their opinions still communicate with them in sacris, and when any attempt has been made to deprive them of their offices, it has been invariably unsuccessful. Against their orthodox opponents, they invariably appeal to the right of free inquiry which is the fundamental principle of the Reformation, and on Protestant grounds the position they take up is perfectly impregnable. For if the interpretation of the Bible belonged to private judgment, the previous questions as to its authenticity, integrity, and inspiration, without the settlement whereof the right of interpretation becomes nugatory, must be submitted to the decision of individual reason. Thus has the most insidious and dangerous form of infidelity grown naturally, immediately, and irresistibly, out of the very root of Protestantism. The vampire of rationalism, but leaves to the bosom, and sucks the lifeblood of the German Protestant church, mocks, with a fiend-like sneer, her impotent efforts to throw off the monster, efforts which will never be attended with success till the aid of the old mother church be called in, but I have digressed too long, and must not anticipate. While obscure writers like Nikolai, Bart, and Bastow were carrying on with the most reckless violence, and with the weapons of a most shameless ribaldry, the warfare against Christianity, which the Protestant theologians had insidiously commenced, the great critic, Lessing, the founder of the modern German literature, lent his powerful support to the anti-Christian league. While librarian at Wolfenbüttel, he edited a work exposed by Ramirez, consisting of various irreligious essays entitled Fragments of Wolfenbüttel, and which, from the tone of earnestness and dialectic acuteness wherein they were written, exerted a very prejudicial influence over public opinion. 
a vigorous mind of Lessing could not rest satisfied with the shallow illuminism of the eighteenth century, and his irreligious productions seemed oftener to spring out of a desire to torment the orthodox Lutherans of his day than to be the result of his inmost conviction. Sometimes he pushed his unbelief even to the pantheism of Spinoza, and sometimes again he took up the Catholic side, and with that dialectic art, in which he was so great a master, proved the necessity of tradition for the right interpretation of scripture. The name of Lessing leads me naturally to speak of the German literature of the 18th century in its relation to religion. This literature, considered as a whole, if not always decidedly hostile, was at least perfectly alien from the spirit of Christianity. As the Protestant theology of the day was fast reviving the doctrines and morality of paganism, so this literature, consciously or unconsciously, strove to awaken an exclusive enthusiasm in behalf of the moral and social institutions, the manners, the customs, the feelings, and modes of thinking of the heathen world. We all know what injurious effects the sudden revival and too particular cultivation of the old classical literature produced in the 15th century. Yet if in an age, when in despite of the growing laxity and corruption of manners, the tone of society was still eminently Catholic, and the church yet held such an immense sway over the minds and conduct of men, an ill-directed classical enthusiasm was attended with such mischief and danger. What must be the result, at a time when Christianity was almost entirely obliterated from the minds of many? When the Protestant church of the day, instead of checking, encouraged the advances of heathenism, and when the new Hellenic enthusiasts called up the genius of paganism, not timidly, but openly and boldly, not in mere translations and commentaries as heretofore, but in the popular poetry, in the drama, the romance, the critical essay, and the philosophic dialogue, and when the evocators were endured with that power of seduction, those irresistible magical spells that belonged to the genius of a Lessing, Herder, a Schiller, a Schelling, and a Goethe, Thus the new literature, which was a child of the new Protestant theology, tended much to confirm its authority and extend its influence. Of Herder, Friedrich Schlegel, in his History of Literature, says, quote, In his earlier life he had pursued a better path and sought to find in the primitive revelation the clue to all traditions, to all sagas, to all philosophy and mythology, and so we must the more regret that in his latter years he should have abandoned that light, and at last have totally sunk down into the fashionable ways of a mere shallow and insipid illuminism. Unquote. Schiller was one possessed of high intellectual endowments and noble qualities of heart, which, in a more genial clime and under kindlier influences, would have, doubtless, produced far different fruits. But, as it is, we see a generous plant whose foliage was too often nipped and blighted by the icy breath of a rationalist theology. The most pernicious influence, however, over the public mind was exerted by the mighty genius of Goethe. His cold, worldly-minded egotism, his epicurean aversion to all energetic patriotism and self-devoted heroism, his subtle, disguised sensuality, his utter indifference for all religious belief, and on the other hand, his false idolatry for art, 
and his heathenish enthusiasm, arrayed in all the charms of the most seductive poetry, were most fatal to the cause of Christianity and of all public and private virtue. Yet Goethe, too, had occasional glimpses of the truth. In his autobiography we find an interesting description of the extraordinary love for the Catholic liturgy and ceremonial that had captivated his heart in boyhood, and even in latter years this feeling had not entirely died away, for the same work contains some splendid pages on the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, where their mutual connection and their exquisite adaptation to the wants of the human heart and the necessities of human life are set forth with a depth of thought and a beauty of diction not surpassed by any Catholic divine. But, if the polite literature of this period was so propitious to the growth and spread of rationalism, the remark applies with far greater force to the systems of philosophy that exerted so great an influence in the latter half of the 18th century and the early part of the present. Quote, the new philosophic systems, says Dr. Dollinger, conceived, born, and bred in Protestantism, aided and promoted the progress of rationalism. The Kantian philosophy declares the religion of reason to be the only true one. The ecclesiastical faith, that is to say, faith in the truths of a positive revelation, is there opposed to the religious faith whose purport may be derived from every man's own reason. Revealed religion, according to this system, can and ought to be naught else but a mere vehicle for the easier introduction of rational religion. The ecclesiastical faith will, by degrees, become extinct and give place to a pure religion of reason, alike evident to all the world. In conformity with these principles, a new rule was set up for the interpretation of Scripture, to wit, that nothing was to be looked for in the Bible, save the mere religion of reason, and that everything else was to be regarded as a mere veil, or as an accommodation to the popular notion of the time, or as the private opinion of the sacred writer. All these theories perfectly harmonize with the favored opinions of the day, and hence we may account for the extraordinary approbation which this philosophic system received on the part of so many Protestant theologians. By the side of the Kantian philosophy, the rival system of Jacobi found its partisans among the Protestant divines, and this philosophy was no less incompatible with the Christian religion than that of Kant. According to Jacobi, religion, like all philosophic science, depends on a natural immediate faith, an indemonstrable perception of the true and the spiritual, and any other revelation besides this inward one doth not exist. Quote, to the true religion, says he, in his work on divine things, no outward form can be ascribed as the sole and necessary shape of its substance. On the contrary, the utter absence of all forms is characteristic of its very essence. As the glory of God lay hidden in Christ, so it lies hidden in every man. Unquote. Lastly, as regards the philosophy of identity, quote, Some of its disciples, especially the theologian Dolb, have doubtless more justly appreciated the speculative value of some Christian dogmas but none have succeeded in demonstrating the compatibility of the general principle of this philosophic system with the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. On the contrary, the followers of this philosophy put forth assertions which are at open variance with the primary dogmas of that religion. 
Among these we may include the doctrine that it is only in history the absolute first becomes personally conscious of himself, and that all things divided will finally return to identity, a doctrine which annihilates all personality, unquote. Emboldened and confirmed by these philosophical speculations, the theological rationalism assumed a more decided tone and pursued a more daring course. Wegscheider, DeWitt, Scott, Hollis, Brett Schneider, Rohr, and others successively arose, who denied the inspiration of the Bible, disputed the authenticity of many books of the Old and New Testament, explained away the prophecies, rejected and ridiculed the miracles recorded in the scriptures, threw out imputations on the intentions of the apostles, arraigned the wisdom of the divine Savior himself, and lastly, contested the necessity and even possibility of a supernatural revelation. The game of the old Gnostic sects was revived on the most arbitrary assumptions and frivolous hypothesis. Entire books of scripture were rejected. The genuineness of the most important passages of the Bible were disputed. Even the authenticity of one or other of the Gospels was assailed, till at last, as Reinhardt once observed, quote, Whoever wished to obtain the applause of the critical journals was obliged to declare some scripture spurious or attack some established doctrine. Unquote. But between these rationalists and the early heretics with whom I have compared them, there is an important difference to be observed. The latter called in question the genuineness and authenticity of various portions of holy writ, not on critical grounds, but from polemical motives. They were led on to these assaults on the scripture by an impassioned fancy, heated with strange, extravagant, and perverse, though often ingenious systems of philosophy. Among their modern imitators, on the other hand, it was the cold, critical understanding, directed by a mere negative hostility to the Christian religion, which engaged in these attacks on the Bible. End of section 3